0: HI101, we discussed the mainstream political climate in Europe at the end of the First World War. Today, we'll discuss some of the fringe ideas that emerged at the turn of the century, and the ways in which they influenced the emerging fascist movement in Italy. Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Ethan Blesky. Hi, I'm excited to be back. I'm glad you're back too. Uh, We've been talking about, uh, well, it was called fascism part one. We didn't actually talk that much about fascism in it, did we? Um, no,
1: no, it was just sort of a, a preamble.
0: Yeah, more like talking about the political climate, uh, or at least the mainstream political climate around the uh, the First World War, right? And one one thing that anybody who knows much about fascism listening to that would have been screaming at me the whole time is that, like, I'm ignoring a lot of fringe groups that were in existence at that point in time because <laughs> it's not as though fascism pops out of nowhere at the end of World War One, right? Like there are precursors to it, right? Yeah. So uh, I thought that the best place to start today was to talk about some of the ideas, some of the thinkers that would uh, lead to the ideas that the the fascist leaders would agree with, uh, co-opt, subscribe to, however you want to say it. Um, yeah. But that, that seemed like the best place to start. Now, that being said, before, I, before we get going, I, I do really want to make a point of... Highlighting the fact that not everything co-opted by fascists is necessarily a precursor per se, and the reason for that is that uh, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit in part one. But as an ideology, as a uh, praxis, as a as a as a way of doing things, fascism is a very aesthetic one. It relies very heavily on symbols and on rituals and on. Uh, ideas of power and tradition that aren't, you know, made from whole cloth. A lot of times what fascists end up doing is taking symbols that are important to a nation and co-opting and and often perverting them to their own purposes. So I think a, a trap that a lot of people can fall into a little bit is taking a uh, symbol or an idea or even just an aesthetic that was important to fascists at some point and draw a line backwards from that to try and determine like a starting point for um, fascism as, as an ideology. And that's going to be a massive mistake. Right. Okay. Um yeah. I, I mean the the kind of elephant in the room example of that would be the swastika, right? You can't yes. you can't just say that because it was a major symbol of Nazism, that anything with a swastika on it is therefore a precursor to Nazism, right? That would be insane. Um, yeah. The, the the history of the symbol um, stretches back thousands of years and means very, very different things than what would come to be associated with it uh, through the Third Reich. Mm-hmm. So that that would be like the, the most basic uh, version of what I'm talking about here. But it also applies to other ideas, because I, I think especially the way that uh, we do history around here with like a, a narrative sort of... Um, Focus. It's easy to get caught up in the idea that because something comes before another thing, it's therefore inevitable that the the, the later things will follow the earlier ones.
1: It's not exact cause and effect. Exactly. It's just yeah. thing one, thing two.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a prog- progression, not necessarily a causation. I mean, and yeah. it's complicated in history because sometimes there are causative effects, but it's up to us to kind of un- unentangle uh, the the causative from the prepositional. So with all of that in mind, let's talk about a few things that kind of lead up to and and kind of inspire early fascist thinkers. The main one I want to point to is this idea of the fin de siècle, the the, uh, end of an age or end of an era uh, in French, which is this general sense at the end of the 19th century that maybe modernity isn't necessarily the best thing. Throughout the Victorian period, the amount by which modernity and progress, uh, you know, uh, occurs around everyone is such a rapid pace that there's a real sense that they're going a little too fast. There's, mm-hmm. th- there's been a, uh, an assertion that people alive in like the last 30 years of the 19th century went through more rapid and more radical progress on both a social and a technological level than possibly any other time. Uh, in history. Now obviously that's debatable and it's Eurocentric and there's a lot of other things that we could do to argue with that. Yeah. But it also doesn't change the fact that people living through that time also felt that way about themselves. And in a certain sense that's more important than, you know, our, our list called ranking list. You know? Yeah. 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 The thing that happens that's different at the end of the 19th century than the beginning is that you know at the the beginning of the 19th century there's this sense that like science is going to save us right like rational rationality is going to make all of our lives better. There's industrialization that's making people wealthy that's uh, creating consumer goods on a new level. There's uh, you know these political changes that are are putting power into the hands of more and more people. Um, You know the middle class is being created virtually from scratch. Um, People have have uh, leisure time for the first time in basically all of European history. And all of this is feeling pretty good until things start coming, you know, consequences start showing up from that stuff that feels a lot more dangerous to these people. So things like, well, the the level of destruction and warfare, right? Like what you start seeing in, in wars later in the 19th century. It's kind of like, oh, like, should we really be chasing bigger and bigger bombs? Is that a good idea? Because that's going along with industrialization, with modernism. Things like whether or not our investigations into, uh, for example, science are necessarily a good idea. Like, is it is it actually a good thing that we know about uh, Darwin, for example, now? Is it good that we've kind of reduced our place in the universe to just another animal? Like, yeah, that's probably true, but also, like, it strips away something... More meaningful from the human experience, or it kind of feels that way to the people at that point in time
1: the magic's gone
0: the magic's gone is a really good way of putting it um
1: it's less shiny,
0: yeah, yeah, and so. And, and would uh, would
1: mary shelley fit into that too
0: oh my goodness uh, we could talk about mary shelley <laughs> i'm actually in the middle of a reread of frankenstein inter- interestingly enough um, oh cool and and yeah mary shelley is uh, we we could we could do an entire thing on how mary shelley fits into this entire topic and it would take us a very long time and that's why i've left her out altogether
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay awesome
0: yeah, Frankenstein is is a is a critique of science going too far. It's about men who pry too deep, right? Like that's that's sort of what she's getting at with the uh, with the moral of that story. It's also about um, people who don't take uh, the consequences of their actions seriously enough, right? Like the. I think, I think people who haven't read the novel, yeah. of course now I'm talking about it. Thanks. Um, but people haven't, people haven't read the novel who have the, the movie version of this in their head is, is it's kind of like, Oh, a mad scientist creates a monster and then the monster is unleashed upon the world and horrible things happen. That's really not what happens. It's about, it's about rejection. It's about societal failings, right? It's, it's about the way that the world has turned its back on, uh, the creation. And, and that's, that's what she was really kind of pointing to with that whole work and and it, it really taps into this idea at the in, in this era of like society kind of crumbling and like the underpinnings of you know the, the, the bases of society like the, the the simple nature of like different people relating to one another um, yeah. are being stripped away by uh, science but also by the politics of the age. You know okay. the, the the individualism of things like liberalism are really feeling like they're chipping away at senses of community.
1: They they would argue it's more isolationist than individualist.
0: Yeah, I suppose so, or or that it's a um, shirking of responsibilities to fellow human beings,
1: to the community.
0: Okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know there is socialism there as a uh, replacement, but it's seen as kind of clinical in a way it's uh, very economics focused it's very class-based it's kind of like it it feels like instead of community as you would understand it from like your childhood and your home and that sort of like nostalgic idea of community it feels like a very like scientifically created artificial community
1: engineered a, community not organic community
0: mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily seen as ideal by a lot of people either yeah um, okay but there's this massive backlash in the, the fin de siècle movement, which basically pits modernity as the, as the enemy in all of this, as the villain, and focuses really heavily on irrationality. It focuses on uh, subjectivity. It focuses on the fact that the lived experience of the human being is different from person to person, but that the, uh, th- there's, a, there's a necessity of like support and there's a necessity of felt experience. There's also a, a focus on vitality, like the idea that living things are just somehow different, and that it's not really just a sum of like biologically mechanism or bi- biologically mechanical parts that are, you know, f- living out uh, uh, reflex responses. That there's something special about being a person, which is not, you know, it doesn't feel terribly, you know, <laughs> unreasonable, especially yeah. in the face of what they're dealing with. But but here we are, yeah. and so. It's especially important to note that there's a focus on decadence. And the way that this comes about is, there's, there's always been this very broad conception of, of uh, European history as basically th- three eras, right? Like the Classical Age, then the Dark Ages, where it's basically people looking back to the Roman Empire and saying like, oh, we've come so far, you know, we've fallen so far sort of thing. And mm-hmm. then the Renaissance, the rebirth, that it's like a third age that they're finally catching back up to where the classics were and even beyond. Okay. Yeah. And of course all of this is wrong and reductionist and whatever, but blah, 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 blah. We don't have to get too deep into that. What you start to see in the fendi des is a recognition that like, well, Rome was at... And, and again, this is not correct, but it's it's a it's a sentiment and that is still important. There's the sentiment that Rome was at its most decadent before its fall, and that to some extent, its decadence was responsible for its fall. So uh, people were made too soft by luxury. Um, gotcha. That yeah. the, the, the extreme levels of leisure and of, of uh, wealth are what made Rome vulnerable to invasion by uh, the Huns and, and all of this stuff. That it's, it's, it's Rome's own decadence that led to its fall. Yeah, and there's this concern as material wealth becomes more and more readily available to these people and the world seems better and better that it's kind of like, well, are we becoming soft too? Is this mm-hmm. is this the end of the world? And they're starting to get those glimmers through things like the the nature of warfare as it as it uh, becomes more and more destructive throughout the the end of the 19th century. And so all of this culminates in like World War 1, of course, which just kind of feels like it's proving those people right to some extent yeah yeah you know there's lots of other ideas that we we really need to kind of keep in in the back of our heads as we're talking about these early thinkers darwinism and social darwinism are really important to all of this this is why we've gone over all these topics in the in the lead up to talking about fascism. So I don't have to talk about all of it right here. But um, <laughs> you know, Herbert Spencer's uh, focus on survival of the fittest in social Darwinism, right? Like this idea that there's a struggle, a violent struggle between organisms to become uh, the strongest, and that's how you live. That's not what Darwin said, but that's a that's a um, an interpretation of. Uh, evolution that focuses on violence as an important aspect of it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Likewise Francis Galton's extension of this idea into eugenics, you know, these people are talking about things that aren't individual organisms as though they are organisms, specifically societies, right? There's this combination of these ideas of social Darwinism, of survival of the fittest, with the idea of the nation as a unique entity in the political space so okay along with ideas like those of thomas malthus so uh scarcity issues okay the yep. idea of carrying capacity in the world the idea that there are only so many resources in the world there's this idea in the late 19th century that well there's only so much to go around so only the strongest nations will be able to feed their people so we need to get strong in order not to perish yeah mm-hmm <laughs> And this is one of those things where I, I kind of point to it and I go, this makes sense, but the ramifications are really horrifying. <laughs> like, yeah. The end game here, when you extend it out, it doesn't take long for this to become a really bad thing. But keep in mind that at the end of the 19th century, we didn't understand a lot of the things that we do now about, for example, agriculture, about carrying yeah. capacity, about yeah. um, the causes of, of uh, famines um yep. things like that 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 we just didn't get at that point and and the the top thinkers of the day were going like, you know, this is probably what's going to happen. We just better be ready to fight all the wars to keep our food. Um <laughs> you know, it's a it's a concerning thought.
1: Eh, what you going to do?
0: <laughs> There's the um uh Arthur de Gobineau uh essay in 1855, an essay on the inequality of the human races. We also talked about that in scientific racism. Um, this is the guy who came up with that idea of um, essentially dividing the human race into three car- uh, three, um, three races um, He's the one that came up with the idea of Arianism he's the he's the one with the ideas about racial destiny about racial purity about the idea of um, you know races becoming diluted by mixing with other races as far as damaging documents go this is Top five, probably. It's it's really rough stuff to read, but yeah. he's popular. You know, a lot of people have heard his ideas, and the way that this plays into something like social Darwinism is this idea where it's like, well, if there's not enough to go around, and some races are, or some nations are going to come out on top, then the relationship between ethnicity and, and nationalism would dictate that uh, nations made up of uh, racially superior people will Mm -hmm. be the victorious ones in this in this uh theoretical conflict you signed up for the topic man
1: yep yes
0: i did here here we are
1: i know i know all of these things hearing them just spouted uh so factually is just so unnerving
0: yeah it's the culmination of a lot of work it's yeah. it's a, it's a lot of stuff that we've gone over and and in a lot more detail than this. So, you know, if you need a refresher on how any of this stuff works, going back and listening should hopefully help out with that. But this is this is a this is a group of ideas that are all sort of happening in the same 50-60ish year span that are pointing yeah. towards a conclusion that is is starting to crystallize here, right? Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a psychologist, or an early psychologist, I suppose, named uh, Charles-Marie Gustave Le Bon, who had an 1895 work called The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. Okay. Le Bon suggested that a crowd is as much an individual organism as, a, as an individual person is when they're alone. That there is an emergent will or mind behind a crowd when you look at the way that people act in crowds. That yeah. there's sort of a, you know, the same way that cells come together to form a singular, singular organism, uh, so too can, you know, individuals come together to form a single crowd with a single mind. Um, mob mentality. Mob mentality is a great way of putting it. Yeah. And this is a this is a really popular psychological notion at the at the turn of the century. It's it's really well received. But what it does is it refutes in a lot of ways this idea of individual will and rationality and decision making. What he's suggesting is that when people get swept up in things, they stop making rational decisions and they just go along with their gut instinct. Okay that there's an emergent will of that crowd, and that if one was able to harness that will, one would be able to direct uh, that entire crowd of people however they would like. Because there isn't going to necessarily be a dissenting uh, portion of the crowd that splits away. If you can get enough people into a group that to the point that they form a cohesive crowd, and then you can get that crowd on your side, they're all on your side.
1: Once that momentum starts, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Uh, he also had a lot of suggestions on exactly how to d- perform that manipulation. Oh. You can't really talk about fascism without bringing up Nietzsche, which I don't want to spend a lot of time on, mostly because I don't want to expose how poorly I understand Nietzsche. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've, read, I've read so much Nietzsche over my years of studying history, and I still am not going to pretend to really understand Uh, everything that the guy is getting at. But there's a few key concepts that we want to pull away from Nietzsche. Okay. One is that Nietzsche uh, identified the fact that the 19th century uh, and its uh, focus on rationalism and uh, liberalism dealt a pretty severe blow to the place of religion in European society. That's the whole God is dead and we have killed him bit, right? Yeah. However, he also criticized the fact that prior to this murder, I suppose, the vast majority of church going people were, in his opinion, pretty passive in their decision making skills. He'd call them, you know, basically a herd, Um, you know, basically saying that they couldn't really think for themselves and they were allowing the church to do the thinking for them. So, objections to that aside. What Nietzsche was was saying here was essentially that the idea of the individual as being a rational actor doesn't really bear out in the way that most people conduct themselves. What most people are looking for is a strong leader, but what's happened in society is that we've downplayed the, the role of the church to such a significant amount that people are basically just waiting to be told what to do by somebody as powerful as the church. Okay. This is known as the will to power. He believes that most people don't want freedom. He believes that most people want a strong leader to tell them what to do. Okay, And you can kind of see where he's coming from on on, on some of this stuff, right? Um, At least in the context of like 19th century German philosophy, where you're talking about this stuff in the context of emerging German nationalism, things like that, right? Yeah. What Nietzsche suggested as the solution to this problem, I suppose, is um, a way to... Basically, he suggested that what all people should be striving to become is the sort of person to lead that group. And he's not talking about everyone should want to become a dictator, but he's saying that everyone should try to become self-actualized enough that they can be that type of leader to others, that they should learn to assert their own will. And this can be read as... Uh, an appeal to uh, individualism, as in to you know, become the sort of person that doesn't want to follow a crowd, or mm-hmm. it can also be read as become the person who can lead the crowd and that makes you the most powerful person. This is what I'm talking about when I say that just because something points to fascism doesn't make it inherently fascist. Yeah, um, Fascists yeah. love Nietzsche, but it doesn't mean that Nietzsche was necessarily a proto-fascist that being said his whole uh you know spiel about the uh you know the ubermensch right this idea that a, that a, a it's usually translated as like a superman will come along and be able to like lead people in a in a sort of a new civic religion kind of thing is definitely fascist sounding yeah. um, and the focus of uh you know later nazi Uh, programs on the superiority of the Aryan race, et cetera, et cetera, this idea that all Nordic people were those supermen is lifted directly off of Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. You have a guy named Charles Morat who put forward this idea of integral nationalism. Integral nationalism is this idea that there is patriotism, like there's love for your country. And then there's okay. this idea that a kind of an ultranationalist, if you will, is so devoted to their state that they will put state above all else no matter the cost. They're willing to die for the state. They're willing to lie for the state. They're willing to give uh, anything to further the ends of the nation to which they belong. Uh, Maab believed that a powerful leader was essential to unity that the idea of the popular will is a, is a myth. It's a, it's a mirage. It doesn't really exist. And all that's really happening is people are following whichever leaders push forward the best pitch, I suppose, for a strong and centralized nation. Uh, he was anti-democratic and he believed that there was a need for what he called a political religion, that if people aren't going to be going to church, then they should be as devoted to a party or an ideal as they are uh, to their religion. I think you're seeing a theme here as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep.
0: Then you get Georges Sorel who advocated for the legitimization of political violence in his 1908 work Reflections on Violence. This is in a context and, and what's interesting here is that Sorel is actually at, at least at this point in time would probably fit closer into the socialist end of the spectrum than necessarily a uh uh, fascist or, or uh, ultra nationalist uh, end of the spectrum. He, okay. he was looking at it from the perspective of a vanguard theory of revolution. Keep in mind, oh, okay. yeah. Keep in mind this is pre-bolshevik uh, revolution and at this point, uh, you know in 1908, generally Marxists are considered like orthodox and like old school. they're like kind of regressivist. Um, socialism has, has moved on from the need for Marx, if you will. Um, huh. There are a lot of new ideas out there. Uh, we'll, we'll get to a couple of them later. Um, yeah. Syndicalism yeah. is the big one. But he's he's basically saying, like, well, if we understand the roadmap to a better society and we're not doing every, everything we can to push society that way, then we're not acting in the best way possible. And if it is going to be so much better then maybe it's actually worth some violence in the short term to bring about utopia in the long term is, is sort of what he's saying here okay. um he also is advocating for something that he calls a political religion um or a civic religion in his case he's also you know anti-democratic here he's talking about uh, a strong centralized leadership that can enforce basically what's best for people on them yep and yeah. It, again, it's this idea that violence is not necessarily only okay or justified, but sometimes it's actually a good thing in and of itself because it's a strengthening of the movement through a very like literal interpretation of it. It's a it's a, a show of force. It's a um, it's an assertion of your ideas backed up by action. Hmm. Okay. Last time we talked about the First World War sort of in the in the abstract, each time it was through a different political lens, right? The ideas that the fascists would learn from the First World War are, are a number of things that I think when you boil them down, it's like, oh, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of them is that the total war nature of the First World War, like the mass mobilization of citizens and the mass mobilizations of industries that were required yeah. to win the war, shows a real erosion of a distinction between civic uh, participation and military participation to the
1: point
0: point where you might as well consider any citizen a part of the military machinery. It also forced states to impose higher levels of control on the citizenship and limit rights. And when they did so, they were able to act with a singular will in a way that they hadn't been able to while trying to participate in parliamentary democracy or free market societies. Yeah, There was a prevalence of unity parties during the First World War, which is this idea that like all the political parties put aside their differences and all passed legislation that was in the best interests of the war effort. But what that showed was that a single party can get things done a lot more easily than a bunch of bickering politicians. Gotcha. There is also the um, very uh, uh, social Darwinist interpretation of this crucible of war you know killing weak nations right because you saw how many different empires crumble under the first world war yeah and it's this sort of like well they couldn't hack it therefore they didn't deserve to survive so if you want to survive you need to be taught this is bleak isn't it
1: uh yes it is (laughs) i mean it all it all totally makes sense but yeah
0: I mean that's that's all I'm really aiming for here. We're, we're not trying to convince anybody of anything. This is some pretty reprehensible stuff. But again, please,
1: please don't convince anybody of anything.
0: Honestly, but it's <laughs> it's it's like it's also that whole thing where it's like okay, well, you need to put your head in that 1919 place. You know they don't yeah, exactly. have they don't have. Any idea what the consequences of you know they don't have an idea of what the end game of all of these ideas are. They don't have that experience. They don't have you know this is a brand new uh, set of mores that's coming forward, right? Like this is mm-hmm. this is untested, and it's happening in a in an era of of um, upheaval that is is in a lot of ways unmatched, as we talked about, right? Like it's it's just kind of like well, how are we supposed to navigate this? What's supposed to get us through? Because you know, as we talked about in part one, socialism doesn't seem to be doing it well. I mean, let's let's talk about the Bolshevik Revolution. What do you learn from the Bolshevik Revolution as a as a future fascist? You learn how uh, how much gets done with the one party system. Yep. You uh, understand the effectiveness of political violence in asserting political will. Mm-hmm. Uh you learn the importance of a party army, right? Because remember, the Bolsheviks came out of the February revolution with a you know, they weren't in power, but there was a two uh like a split power system, right, between the Soviets and the Duma. Do you remember yeah. that part? So like there's a there's there's both a workers' council and there's a unelected parliament. And there's a, you know, it ends up in a struggle in October between those two systems as to which one's actually going to take power. It's not going to last as cooperation. And a big part of the success of the the Bolsheviks is the fact that they have their own army. They have people that are their own party shock troops. They're not the Russian state army. That's the white Army. The Red Army is volunteers from the party who are willing <laughs> to throw down in the streets. And that's what makes the the whole thing. Work out for them. Yes, it ends up in a in a civil war that's going to last a while. But that the, the availability of those people who are willing to go and fight in the streets is a big uh, source of of success for the Bolsheviks.
1: It was down and dirty, but it worked.
0: Mm-hmm. So, in general, you know, at the end of the First World War, yeah, you you know, socialists are looking at systems that either have not really borne any fruit or are getting chipped away at from the right because of the emergence of social liberalism, where they're finally starting to like give literally any uh, social support to anybody. Uh, or on the left, you're looking at people who are going, well, maybe we should just do like the Bolsheviks. That's a really, really fractured experience. Um, mm-hmm. On the right, the conservatives are basically gone because there's nothing you know, the, the, the fin de siècle era has basically chipped away at all foundations of tradition and conservatism um it's
1: it's just a wisp of nostalgia at that point
0: Mm -hmm. and and one that people aren't necessarily all that fond of at the moment because it mostly uh, reminds them of the fact that it led to the first world war and then on the liberal front i mean you know people who are who are committed liberals yeah sure they're they're convinced that those ideas are are the best way forward the the liberal democracies as we talked about are the ones that came out of it strongest but like At the same time, there is sort of this reluctance after the war, right? Where it's kind of like, okay, but do we keep pushing with progress? Do we keep pushing with modernizing? Because didn't that just get us to the to the war? Mm -hmm. You know, they're gonna put into place the League of Nations to try and prevent it from ever happening again, but like in a lot of ways, the voting population tends to roll back a little bit on some of the progress. Um, not from like a rights standpoint, but certainly from like a, a progressive ideal standpoint. You start yeah, seeing okay. much more like conservative, much more hesitant uh, governments. Let's not use the same thing, same word for several different things. But <laughs> you do see a lot of people who look at the current situation and go like, well, you know, maybe at least we should vi- at the very least we should evaluate where we're at, whether or not this is still a good idea before we move move forward further.
1: Not just charge blindly forward, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Which you know, when you, when you come right down to it is a fundamentally, you know, politically conservative point of view, right? Let's stick with what's working. Um, Yeah. You know, ignoring the, ignoring the, the economic uh, uh, ramifications from a social point of view, that's what conservatism is in a very reductionist way. But, you know, here we are, we don't have forever. Um, (laughs) So in the midst of all that, there's this system that's coming along that's saying, listen, we hear you. Modernity is bad the world is tough. Maybe the things that we're trying that have led to really bad things aren't the way to go. And we have answers about what the next thing is that we should try. The lessons that the people have learned from not only the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution, but also these thinkers, these people who are going to become the first fascists, some of the lessons that they've learned here are that they should be anti-liberal, that that's not working out, that they should be anti-conservative, conservatism didn't work out, and that they should be anti-socialist. Socialism is a dangerous choice. And they've learned that all three of those things are very popular.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They've learned that what needs to happen, um, or what people respond to, at least, is that is this idea of a creation of a new nation with a new system that like results in a new nationalism. Something that's new and different, but not necessarily of the Enlightenment, right? They're looking for yeah. a, a refresh. They learn that people are by and large, willing to use and respond to the glorification of violence for political means. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people coming back from the war that have learned to fight. They are no longer squeamish about violence. And the only thing they necessarily learned from the war in terms of like anti-violence sentiment is that if you're going to use violence, maybe it should be for something, something meaningful, because they feel like they fought for nothing in a lot of cases.
1: Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't
0: mean that they're not afraid to fight, or that that they are afraid to fight, I should say. Yeah. Um, They've learned that nations are willing to mass mobilize, that people are willing to work collectively if it's an important enough goal. And finally, they've learned to appeal to a number of values that feel safe or feel protective to people, Uh, specifically um, the aesthetics of tradition without necessarily being of those traditions themselves. Yeah. Okay. So look old and established, even though you're doing something young and fresh. Um yeah. speaking of young and fresh, youth. You know, there there are all these old rulers, there are all these old politicians that had bad ideas. We need to look forward to the future. This future-facing thing is is going to be very, very popular. It's going to really resonate with people. This idea that the youth are going to save us has been around for a very long time. <laughs> but In the case of the early fascists, it's also going to tie into ideals of um, strength, of vitality, of fertility, of uh, masculine uh, energy. um, Lots of symbolism. Lots of symbolism, which, again, people respond to really well. And the final thing that they've learned all of this is to appeal to the aesthetic and to the emotional, that people aren't always, you know... They don't just respond to logic. In fact, a lot of people aren't all that logical. Mm-hmm. But everyone uh, everyone responds to emotion. There's a lot of psychology coming out at this point in time that's suggesting that people don't really respond to or don't act rationally. It's it's kind of a stimulus response thing. It's an emotional response thing. That yeah. a person's lived experience isn't through reason. A, a person's lived experience is through perception and emotion. Mm-hmm and the idea of basing your entire political existence or even social existence on a denial of that seems like a bad idea. And so these people who are building this new this new system are looking at all of these things and going like, well, this is different enough that it could work. Yeah. So I think that's a pretty good starting point for like the the philosophical underpinnings, I suppose. There's this idea that gets passed around every once in a while, they're like, oh, fascists don't actually have an ideology. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that the problem with grouping fascism in with other ideologies is that other ideology, other political ideologies tend to be fairly absolute. Um, You look at liberalism and it's founded on this idea that uh, people have universal rights and it's a a, a focus on personal liberties. Okay, yeah. With fascism, you don't have that like core mission statement. You don't have that creed. What you do have is these sets of ideas about how to gain power. And anything else is negotiable. And that is more
1: flexible. Yeah.
0: And that is still an ideology. That's still an idea of how to navigate a political space. Yeah. It's just a much, different approach to it. It's an approach without a core idea, uh, a core concrete idea. It's a, it's a, it's an idea that has a much more reactive center to it. Mm-hmm. And given the number of circumstances that these people are reacting to, it's kind of understandable how that develops. Let's take a quick break there, and when we come back, uh, we will talk about the first, at least by name, fascist movement in Italy. <laughs> We're back on HI101 here with Ethan Blesky. Hello. And we've been talking about some, uh, some rather bleak ideas that, um, you know, again, it, it's, it's one of those tricky things where on one hand, you don't want to forgive any of this stuff. But on the other hand, you want to make sure that it's within reach, I suppose, when we talk about this Und- stuff. Understood. Yeah, because and, and I think I mentioned this a little more in the first section than the than this one but one of one of my real goals for this whole series i suppose is to demystify the whole thing a little bit
1: it's uh it's it's kind of just been made other
0: it's cartoonish in in a certain sense you know uh, yeah yeah yeah. it's the it's the it's the it's the indiana jones nazis right like it's sort of (laughs) <laughs> mustache twirling, like you know, it's it's people you don't need to care about if the if the good guy kills them, right? Like it's it's sort of it's. Yeah. it's and while that's understandable, and while that's maybe not the worst thing in the world to um, villainize fascism, uh, it, it also I, I think what it can do in some cases is put it so out of reach of most people's conception that. They, they really have a hard time a understanding how anybody could have fallen for it in the first place mm-hmm. and, and B um, maybe have trouble seeing how something like that could ever happen again. And yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not necessarily one of those people who is, is, you know, any, any time somebody doesn't quite agree with me calling fascist, but at the same time, i I'm, Somebody who's who's been alarmed by the occasional thing or two over the uh, over the past little while, where it's kind of like I feel like we should be worried about this a little more. And yeah, you know, I I, I think I, I mentioned in the first in the first part. Most people I find are either far too eager to cry fascists or not nearly eager enough. Um, hmm. and I suppose that's one of those things that it's going to always feel like the people who. Are more or less than you are wrong, but it's it, it's that, yeah, it's it's that problem of only ever happened once or is happening all the time, and it's neither of those things. This is a this is a, a political moment that is very much of the twentieth century. Um, it's very much of its time, but that doesn't mean that there's no lessons to learn from it. Just as though there were um, plenty of lessons to learn from the French revolution or from the Russian revolution for that matter, just because they're over, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be cognizant of some of the ways that, you know, these things can affect our lives today. Um, and, and so too, we should be looking to the rise of fascism in several countries to, you know, not, not as though we'll see the exact same thing in the exact same way. Uh, but because it's, the kind of thing that just sort of happened to normal people and um the warning signs can be important with all of that out of the way let's talk about italy uh last time we left uh italy was a few episodes ago and a couple of decades ago and uh with the uh with the risorgimento the reunification we talked about a bunch about some very colorful characters <laughs> who had some splendid uh adventures reunifying italy and in a lot of ways at the end of it we were sort of stuck with a piedmont sardinia led new country that was not necessarily the most satisfying thing for all nationals especially given the tensions between the north and the south well you know to to skip ahead a little bit those tensions still exist uh in the early 20th century in italy between mm-hmm. North and South, there there are some pretty uh, significant economic and social divides between the areas of the country. That doesn't just go away over a couple of decades. The political class is almost entirely from the North. Uh, Italy is one of the highest taxed countries in Europe, despite the economy being relatively low. Mm. It's really struggling by the time you get to uh, the First World War. And... I think that a lot of people um, were really frustrated with its uh, with its place in the world because there was this idea during the Risorgimento that unifying Italy would put it on the same level as great powers like uh, France or uh, Austria or Germany. And instead, they were kind of a secondary power in a lot of ways that were, I, I, I saw it kind of compared a lot to like, newly independent Greece, or to Spain, or Portugal. And that's not what the architects of Italian unification were looking for. Yeah. So, it's a pretty common sentiment that it's a failed endeavor. There's also a pretty common sentiment that it was incomplete, that there were areas that should have been part of Italy that weren't. You'll remember in the unification episode that they essentially traded Southern France for France, yeah. yeah, 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 for other territories. That was not a universally popular move. A lot of people <laughs> felt that they should have dominion over Nice. Uh, they felt that Corsica uh, should be Italian. They felt that a region known as Dalmatia, which is kind of it's in modern day Croatia. In the, hmm. in the Balkan okay. Peninsula, but had historically okay. been under the control of, ooh, I think it's Venice, uh, one of the merchant city states. Um, yeah. So had a history of, of uh, Italian uh, membership. That should have been included. There's territory in Albania, in portions of Switzerland, uh, Slovenia, that people were making uh, arguments for being Italian territory. Hmm and felt that the government had failed by not going after some of these territories or by in some cases giving up those territories uh there's also this feeling that like well we played by the rules like we did everything right and we still didn't get what we were owed and when you are in a situation uh where you do or you believe you do everything right and things still go wrong you're gonna go looking for somebody to blame yeah in general this is felt to be the fault of france and britain mainly uh oh. a lot of the reason for that is uh world war one itself okay i'm not sure if you know italy's history in world war one at all but when the war broke out they were in a defensive pact with germany and austria however the very specific phrasing of that defensive pact did not trigger italy's entry into the war Okay. So initially, they were neutral. Germany and Austria were very upset about this, but Italy didn't really want to be pulled in on their side. I mean, remember, they have a historical enmity with Austria. So the first year of the First World War, um, Italy spent in negotiations with France and Britain. It resulted in something known as the Treaty of London, 1915, in which Italy basically asked that if it joins the war on Britain's side. And if the war is won, that in the peace negotiations, the territories of Slovenia and Dalmatia be granted to Italy. Remember, they had gained other territories in exactly this way only a few decades before. Um, I'm I'm not sure how many of those details you remember, but essentially by participating in the... uh, German-Austrian War, or sorry, Prussian-Austrian War, Uh, they gain quite a bit of of territory while still really doing terribly in the actual war itself. That's kind (laughs) of the goal here. Just last through the war, be on the winning side, and get a bunch more territory. Makes sense. Here's the thing. When the war ends and the Treaty of Versailles shakes out, they get some of Slovenia, but Dalmatia basically goes to oh i'm gonna get this wrong i believe it goes to the new newly created yugoslavia uh okay it's not part it's not made part of italy i'm gonna have to look that up if it's not yugoslavia it's croatia it's all anyways the balkans are messy at this point in time people are just drawing lines willy-nilly it's bad
1: yeah (laughs)
0: So Italy is feeling really betrayed by uh, by these powers again, specifically France and Britain, because they lead the Treaty of Versailles negotiations, right? As the main winners, the sense here is that while the negotiations are driven by an ideal of the nation-state, you know, one nation per state, that what's happened in these territories, which they consider uh, traditionally Italian. That they're Mm -hmm. not giving traditionally Italian territories to Italy. And they're kind of like, well, who are these rules for exactly? Now if you ask somebody who's living in Dalmatia, they probably do not speak Italian at this point in time. Um, (laughs) It's not, you know, like it's, it's, Italy has wanted that land for a long time, but it hasn't been Italian for a very, very long time. Yeah. There's a man named Enrico Corradini who advocates for a fusion between Morassian and Sorelian doctrines. Uh, Remember Morass is the one talking about integral nationalism, you know, nationalism you would die for. Okay. And, you know, suggesting that powerful leader is essential to unity, the, the, you know, civic religion, all of that stuff. And Sorel is the one who talks about the legitimization of political violence and the moral imperative to hasten revolution. So he's basically saying like, well, the way that we get ourselves out of this space is we have been treated by Britain and France as a, he would call it a proletarian nation. This is really interesting to me because what he's doing is taking uh, Marxist ideas. Yeah. And applying it on a state level, the same way that a social Darwinist would take individual biological ideas and apply it on a state level
1: on a state level yeah
0: that's really interesting to me he's taking he's taking ideas and and blowing them up to um to a state level and and what that does is it tacitly unifies everybody in the nation under the same directive by doing so right in the same way that we talked about the um the crowd mentality right uh from lavanse Uh, activity or uh, uh, works, he's -hmm. basically saying like, well, we're all being all of Italy, the the nation of Italy, not even all of us, but like Italy as a nation has been exploited by the bourgeoisie nations of Britain and France. We're doing all of the work and they're gaining all of the uh, benefits. Now that's a really reductionist way of looking at what happens (laughs) at the Treaty of Versailles, but... You need to understand this through the lens of a nation of people who feel hard done by through this whole thing. See, Corradini is also paying attention to those those lessons of ultranationalism and those lessons of an appeal to the emotional and to the aesthetic. Right? He doesn't yeah. really care if they're not literally being forced to work without owning any property, right? Like it's not <laughs> actually a worker owner transaction that's happening here. He's co-opting no. the language of revolution of the time, which is al- almost explicit or is almost exclusively uh, socialist. Remember we talked about that last time. Um, mm-hmm. Before fascism, if you're rebelling, you are socialist, you are on the left. But he's taking it and he's applying it to the nation in a way that is familiar to them speaks to their grievances, unifies them as a single unit, and uh, directs them towards a nationalism that discourages dissent and focuses power in a centralized way. Does that all make sense?
1: Yes. Yes, it does.
0: It's a lot of complicated ideas coming together in one thing. He's going to blame Italy's problems on three things. Number one, political class. Italy, if you all remember, had a real issue with uh, people from the north almost exclusively making up the government. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. That hasn't really gone away by the First World War. Oh, okay. And what's more, the parliamentary system in Italy is kind of messy. You know what proportional representation means?
1: Yes, yeah. Basically, uh, the individual states that make up Italy... Would have uh, different amounts of power uh, for how many people would be in that state.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, essentially, each member of parliament should represent approximately the same number of individual citizens, which is a different way of saying the same thing. You know, a, a, a <laughs> province, a province, yeah. or a state that has more population will have more members of parliament. But each person should expect their vote to count approximately the same amount, hence proportional representation. Uh, Italy does not have that. I am not going to pretend (laughs) to really understand the Italian parliamentary model at this point in time. I just didn't have time to look into it closely enough. From what I understand, you could be in wildly varying sizes of constituencies, and not every constituency had the same number of MPs. Like you could have more than one member of parliament for a constituency. I don't know. It was really weird and complicated, and what? Well, it made me kind of angry reading about it a hundred years later. So I can only imagine living under it. It was really, <laughs> it, it was really strange. Um, I don't, I don't quite get it. But people were angry about it. especially in the south Uh, they felt that they were being uh, uh, shafted by political elites essentially and from everything I can tell they kind of were there was a lot of corruption there was a lot of bribery things like that Um, so number one was political elites yeah number two was liberalism, basically, Uh, he was going like, yeah, these ideas are not working for Italy. We tried playing by liberal rules. We got ourselves a democracy. We uh, made a constitution. We, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff that we were supposed to do. And what do we get for it? We're a second class country. We're a proletariat country, as he put it. And the third thing was divisions caused by socialism. The problem that socialism poses to political parties under a parliamentary system is that it is so exclusively class-based that it's kind of hard to draw anybody away from it, um, from from either side of it, either as a uh, middle-class person who isn't considered, you know, working class. Uh, it's hard yeah. to sell them on socialism at all. And for a working-class person, the only idea that you can really give them here is that you're going to benefit under a new system. Um, the problem there is that it's really appealing to people of, of the working class and not appealing at all to anybody else. And that's okay if your goal is socialist revolution, that's kind of the point. Uh, <laughs> if you're an opposing political party in the age of mass politics where literally everyone has the vote, um, well I mean not everyone, but you know what I mean, uh, <laughs> the problem there is that you, you don't really have a way to unite people who are against liberalism into anything else unless they're a worker right so if you're not a worker you don't really have an alternative to the existing system so what Corradini said was that like listen those divisions that are being that that are being caused by socialism those divisions under on class lines along class lines those are dividing italy artificially this is just a made-up thing we need to stop Giving into the divisive politics of socialism that are that are causing problems within our nation, and we need to start focusing on how to unite all of Italy against the true uh, enemies, which are these other countries in Europe that are doing us dirty.
1: Yeah. At what po- At what point do they just start saying, "Look, Italy looks weak." We can be strong.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, that's that's essentially the the message that's that we're it, going yeah. for here, right? It, yeah. it is it is very much a, a message of strength, and and what you're driving at here is that uh, fascism seems to work best when you can simultaneously present uh, an enemy as yep. both weak and strong. Um, yes, and if it can be the same enemy, so much the better. Um, yes, but yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly what you're pointing at is that Italy could be great, except there's this external enemy. Well, there's several external enemies. One of them are other Italians. The other one is other, other Italians. But the third one, you know, it's but those aren't real Italians because that's not the real Italy, right? That's what they're doing here is drawing like very us and them lines. Yeah. Now, the context for all of this is that in the post-war, like the first election post-war, there are various socialist groups that have gained parliamentary power. It's one country where it's actually quite popular. Uh, right after the war, probably because the, the war hasn't really seen any major benefits through the the traditional liberal path to great power status in, in Europe, right? Yeah. But the socialists that come to power uh, post-war really mismanaged that power. One of the problems that socialism had uh, fairly frequently in the in the early 20th century is this like very focused idea of who exactly represents a worker. In that they like tend to really focus in on like factory workers specifically factory workers has never been like a majority of workers right like most people work in in other places yeah but yeah but when you're looking at like a type of socialism glorified by uh you know a german guy in the 1840s it's kind of like that, that does seem like it's where work is headed that's the one that he's expecting to become the most common one. And so it's really okay. got a, a very specific place in the, the socialist canon. The socialists in Italy, without getting like way bogged down in the details, they uh, they really screwed over the, the farmers of Italy. Oh. Mainly through like, there's, there's some like price fixing stuff in there, but there's also a lot of like regulation of uh, farm labor in ways that are really... Difficult for farmers. For example, you're not allowed to hire seasonal labor. Anybody that you hire, you need to hire for the whole year around. Which, if you know anything no. about farming, is not how farm labor that's, works. No, <laughs> you can't. You can't hire people for an entire year to do the the several works of hard several weeks of hard work around harvest. Like that's just not that's not farming. Um, <laughs> and to hire anybody, you have to go through government offices to do it to make sure that it's all on the it's all on the level. So yeah. like, this is this is great for workers but like the people who are actually like growing the food they're having a really hard time and they're really upset by all of this. It's also really affecting you know small to large businesses in Italy who keep in mind have already been having a really hard time running in this country with a fairly poor economy. So this idea that socialists are causing division is is like coming home to roost in like a very like tangible way. And it also feeds into this perception that like all existing political systems are like equally bad like okay we've tried conservatism we've tried liberalism we've tried socialism it's not working very well yeah they only gave socialism like two years but whatever you know you know like it's it's this idea that works it's this idea that like you know the the they they need to find something fast that's going to work out there are there are you know hundreds of thousands of italians eh, Hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands at least. I'm not sure how many they, they feel that <laughs> there, there are tens of thousands minimum of Itali- of Italians that uh, fought in the war that are they need something for it to some extent, yeah. right? Like they're, they're really feeling left out in the out in the cold by all of this. They were told that if they fought, that Italy would be expanded. Like for Italy, the first world war is very much like an expansionist uh, move. It's a very nationalist move. Except yeah. none of the stuff that they actually fought for came true, even though they won. And that's really frustrating. Yeah. So these political groups called uh, fascists start popping up everywhere. The The literal translation is, is like bundles, right? It's It's got the... It, 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 yeah. like a Folks, like a, a bundle of sticks, right? There's a number of words with the same root there, uh, but the sort of... Theoretical or or, uh, symbolic meaning is more like, uh, it's actually very similar to what you would uh, have with Soviet in Russia, right? It's these councils. It's these like small localized groups of like engaged citizens that would often be from like similar uh, industries or at least have like uh, similarly aligned goals. And these fascis aren't necessarily all uh, of a specific Uh, political stripe, but they are trying to organize locally to counter some of the damage that they're seeing as being done by uh, the government at the time. And some of them are going to uh, organize under the principles that have been put forward by Corradini. One of these is founded in Milan by Benito Mussolini in 1919. Mussolini had fought in the First World War. He had been injured in the First World War and was very much one of these nationalists who felt betrayed by uh, the Treaty of Versailles. He would have likely uh, characterized himself as a socialist early on. And a lot of his early fascist ideas actually look pretty socialist when you kind of dig into them. It's just that they've got these like core differences that are going to make a big difference down the road. Hmm. Um, his chapter puts out the uh, what's known as the fascist manifesto in 1919, and like it's very socialist. Like they're calling for universal suffrage, uh, and and truly universal suffrage, including uh, women's suffrage. Um, okay. Universal manhood suffrage had only been put for, put uh, put in place in Italy, like literally the uh, 1914, I believe, like literally just as the war was starting. So they're advocating for a living minimum wage. They're advocating for nationalization of key industries, uh, proportional representation in the government, a 40-hour work week, like all of these things that are usually like really associated with like labor movements.
1: Sounds pretty social.
0: Mm -hmm. They were also uh, expansionist. They believed Mm -hmm. in uh, an expanded Italy, which is in line with Italian nationalists at the time. They advocated for italian imperialism overseas they advocated for let's see uh they were attempting to be uh, cross-class which is different than socialism right like they're trying to include the middle class in all of this so they're trying to appeal to as many people as possible but they're seeing this as building like a new nationalism in italy yeah they also blamed the slavs for their role in occupying dalmatia and for uh, and denying their uh right to own it i suppose <laughs> they also saw them as a uh, nuisance, I suppose, in the new occupation of parts of Slovenia. The problem with giving Italy Slovenia is that it was full of Slavs and they didn't all already speak Ital- uh, Italian and, and, you know, fit into Italian society. So they were advocating for base- basically a forced Italianization of those territories. One of those things that you alluded to earlier was the need for an external uh, enemy in fascism. Yeah. This chapter would see Balkan Slavs as an enemy uh, in in terms of like not only an inferior ethnic group, but also as like they believed that they were making it intentionally more difficult to uh make Slovenia part of Italy again. Like they were subversive.
1: They're sneaky. Mhm. Yeah.
0: This is the chapter that is going to become the fascist party of Italy. Yeah. And you can see those little bits and pieces here that are going to uh, become more pronounced over time. And there are also pieces that are going to fall away over time. Mussolini founds it and he's got, uh, I believe it's nine other executives that are helping out with all of this stuff. And within the first two years of uh, the party, basically he's going to be the only one left as those people all leave and move to other movements and he brings on new ones as the face of the fascist party changes. High turnover. Yeah. I mean political parties always have people coming and going, right? But this is a this is a brand new movement that's being developed at its like very root.
1: And yeah, sounds like they're figuring it out as they're going.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And and as we mentioned earlier, fascism is nothing if not flexible. You yes. Know, it's it's as much about the goal as it is about the method, and the goal for the most part with, with Mussolini, and, and he would say this explicitly in, in 1923, is power. Uh, he believed that he should rule Italy. He should run Italy. He knew the best way forward for Italy.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: so initially this party, uh, specifically the Italian Fascist Party, is popular with workers, but it's also much more popular than than that with the middle class middle-class people you know so small business owners professionals things like that they see mussolini's fascists as an alternative to socialism in that way that we were just talking about right they can see themselves fitting into this movement that would overthrow or replace the existing regime which they saw as fundamentally flawed but yeah they weren't you know written into the ideology as the enemy from the get-go yeah, which you can see how that would be attractive. <laughs> it's seen as a conservative path forward. It's seen as middle class friendly reform. Um, and when I say mm-hmm. conservative path forward, I mean as opposed to a progressive path forward. Not as a as a classically conservative uh, as the as the political ideal goes. Um, it's, seen, okay. it's seen as a way that we can like put the brakes on Italy a little bit, focus on putting Italy first increasing its prestige on the world stage that they feel like it's owed, um, Mm -hmm. hopefully increase its fortunes somewhat, uh, maybe gain back that land that most Italians feel is due to them, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. In 1920, uh, the city of Fiume, which was supposed to be part of the Slovenian land grant, but was uh, ultimately decided to be left off because it was an important city to (laughs) Slovenia, (laughs) Um, it wasn't given to it wasn't given to Italy in in 1919 in 1920 a radical named uh, Gabriele D'Annunzio took a force of uh, a couple thousand guys and took it on himself to just annex the city he just took it over oh okay listen this isn't the first time this has happened in Italian uh, history I don't think we should be too surprised about it
1: (laughs) nah they're used to it it's old old hand yeah
0: and it's one of those things where, you know, any other time in history would have been considered an act of war. In 1920, uh, not even two years after the finish of the Great War, um, people are a yeah. little less trigger happy. They remember what happened last time they got involved in a tiny conflict in the Balkans. <laughs> it doesn't go well. And so. Did they, they in, just sort of sigh and yeah they get on with it well i mean kind of yeah that's the short version Not, nobody really oh, did a no. whole lot about it it would be uh spun off into a an independent state rather than an italian uh, uh holding after a couple of months but like yeah essentially it's it's its own thing or ruled by italian nationalists so it's th- this guy denunzio basically goes and like seizes land that he saw as italian and not only that but the organization that he puts in place to rule this city and the small amount of land around it is about as close to fascist as you're going to get because it is based on well number one he places himself as uh, the di- the dictator of the city number two he has this uh really interesting um constitution made up which legislates the organization the political organization of this uh territory i suppose along uh, corporatist lines and corporatism is similar to uh uh syndicalism which we'll we'll talk about i think we'll talk about it at another point It's this idea that like not only should there be like a workers uh uh council but there should also be like very specific Uh, councils made up of different types of people, and that those those sort of modules should be the base of political power rather than individuals. So you should have a group that represents small business owners. You should have a group that represents day laborers. You should have a group that represents academics, and that those groups should uh, pick their own leadership, that should put forward their own propositions, that should make decisions on things, and those should be Uh, That that should be the level of decision-making that takes place in society. So it's uh, self-organizing to some extent, but ultimately has like a top-down state control because none of the stuff that they're putting forward is going to be passed without the say-so of the dictator, but also it deprivatizes massive amounts of of, uh, the society and um, pushes a lot of people's lives into, a, into the public realm in a way that's going to be very attractive to the fascists.
1: So, so would those groups be a little bit like lobbyists?
0: Yes, except um, they would be, in, instead of lobbyists uh, needing to go through, you know, a, a legislative member, uh, they would just simply be the government. Huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, I'm not saying it's a great system. <laughs> but the thing—the thing to remember about the thing to remember about, um, about fascism—that this looks really interesting to—is that fascists don't really care about individuals at all, like at all. Um, they only care about individuals the way that uh, to reuse a, a, a metaphor from earlier in the show, they only care about them, uh, you know, insofar as they care about like cells in an organism, right? It's good to have healthy ones. If a cell isn't contributing, then it should be left to die, basically. Uh, It's no longer valuable in any way, shape, or form. They're kind of seeing these corporations as, uh, I guess, organs in the body, if we're going to stretch the metaphor. Well, okay. The group that is represented by academics, like all academics, that has value because as a group, they're, co- they're, they're contributing to the knowledge base of a society, but individual academics, that isn't really that important. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, kind of. It's, it's just uh, very different, so it's a little bit trickier to get my head around.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's It's a very different way of running society, and it's a thing that political scientists are going to struggle with defining for a really long time because it sort of looks like a lot of different things at the same time while not really being any of those things. You know, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later, but the, the, the struggle of like defining fascism is, is one of the biggest problems of, of political history in the 20th century. It's really hard to pin down exactly what it is um, because it changes so much and because it looks different in each con- uh, country. Yeah, the other thing that D'Annunzio does that Mussolini really likes, by the way, is he, as part of this like occupying mentality, as part of this Italianization mentality, he adopts explicitly nationalist symbols in his just aesthetic, um, his ruling aesthetic. I suppose you need to keep in mind the the sort of touchstone with uh, Italian nationalism of Rome right Like yeah, Rome, gotta be Rome well of course I mean what else could it be right like that that was one of the struggles of the Risorgimento was getting Rome occupied into the state of Italy um, you know th- this idea of the not really being Italy without Rome right Well Denunzio is going to uh, bring back the Roman salute, which, famously is going to become, uh, you know, a visual symbol of, of Nazi Germany, right? Well, it, it begins with the Italian fascists who are bringing back yeah. a Roman salute. Um, he's going to, uh, y- you know, the speech from the balcony is adopted by uh, Denunzio. There's uh, more modern... I wasn't
1: Mussolini first?
0: That no. was a Denizio move? Huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, huh. he, he brings back more recent uh, references. There's a... Um... <sighs> The Italians had kind of like a green beret equivalent, like a special forces in World War One that were actually very effective, known as the, okay. Ar- the Arditi, who famously wore uh, black uniforms and berets. This imagery was adopted by the military police in D'Annunzio's reign. And these Arditi, the, they're not actually like former special forces, but like they're wearing f- special forces garb. They uh, co-opted
1: it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah
0: they're going to be known well, i mean they're known as black shirts because of the the black oh. uh, uniform they use and this is the this is the beginning of the fascist political army that is going to be like famous throughout italian uh fascism right yeah all of this stuff mussolini is watching from afar and and very much appreciating he's really enjoying this whole thing <laughs> and like yes in 1920 it becomes uh uh independent and it's no longer strictly italian but like the aesthetic stuff that comes out of this really, really affects, uh, Mussolini's path forward. The, the fasci that he belongs to is, you know, other than like putting out manifestos and stuff, hasn't had a lot to do like practically, uh, in the first year or so of its existence. But in 1919 and 1920, Italy sees, um, a lot of violent strike action by labor groups and by socialists um yeah in this era like outside of russia the main radical left is the labor movement like that's how you see it manifest it's not through marxists it's through uh labor unions and and sort of more modular organization on a local level yeah makes sense so mussolini got cozy with local business owners, and basically said, listen, the state is socialist. They don't care that your workers are striking. In fact, they support them. The police aren't really doing anything to stop any of this. I hate socialists too. Um, And I've got these guys. They've started wearing these black shirts. They look real menacing. You want us to help with the union busting? And the business owners went, yes, please. (laughs) <laughs> they're at the end of their rope because they don't know what to do about all of these strikes because they feel like they have tacit government support and what Mussolini is offering is a, a parallel to legitimate force in the government that can be hired out to these business owners specifically for the purposes of doing violence to socialists good this isn't unprecedented No. Specifically in the labor movement, but but elsewhere in in politics as well. I mean, this is the sort of thing that you would also see in North America. We've talked about the Pinkertons before.
1: Pinkerton Detection Agency.
0: Yeah, they they would hire union busters to come in and break things up when they didn't feel like the police were doing enough beating up union members. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that's the thing; those police were already beating up union members. The Pinkertons were just taking it further. In the specifically, like, bigger. Yeah, specifically like the Po Valley region, like Milan region. Okay. Um, the The strikes were especially bad, and that's where Mussolini was was based. And so he basically offered himself as an alternative authority to keep these people in line, keep them working. And because of that, he got much more cozy with business owners, with the middle class. He started shedding some of the explicitly socialist uh, tenets of fascism, started bringing it more in alignment with conservative values. So they had been explicitly uh, anti-clerical. They started getting a lot more cozy with the idea of the church as a traditional demarcation of Italian identity and values right as a yeah not necessarily gotcha. that they became like a, a uh, an explicitly religious organization but they recognized the value of the church as a symbol of italianness as a shibboleth for italianness um yeah. a way of uh you know for example marking whether or not somebody was i don't know slavic and orthodox versus a real italian gotcha this is that civic religion that we've talked about right it's not religion for a spiritual sake it's religion for a civic sake for uh the purposes of nationalism yeah for mussolini he doesn't care whether or not you go to church because he's worried about your soul (laughs) he's worried about the purity of your race
1: how italian you are Mm -hmm. yeah
0: he also abandons uh republicanism in this period because before this mussolini would have said like well we need to like you know create a parliamentary system that's more in line with our values and these business people who are already like kind of anti-republican at this point are going like no we need a strong leader somebody who can step in and the king victor emmanuel iii isn't doing anything like he's just dealing with a socialist parliament and not stepping in which makes him look weak uh, yeah. in their eyes. Uh, we need somebody stronger than that. And so the Republican values of the fascist movement, they kind of go out the window. The movement had kind of been sort of agnostic as far as business goes, other than maybe some like labor rights stuff, which would have been anti business. They get a lot cozier with the idea of business owners, but in a sort of more patriotic way, as in business owners are the lifeblood of the com- uh, of the country sort of way. Gotcha. This sort of like, well, For Italy to be strong, it must be prosperous. And for it to be prosperous, it must do business, therefore. Right? These are people who are contributing to society.
1: A good economy, yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. And you also see a growing opposition of... Modern shifts in norms in Italian culture. So, women's rights that had been advanced under socialism and under uh, liberalism, you start seeing uh, re- uh, rejection of that. Likewise, any loosening in sexual mores, a big push against that. There's they, they become very very traditional, very focused on like a this idea of like a real Italy, whatever that's supposed to mean. Because you know, remember this is a country that's only existed for fifty years at this point. Um yeah. But it doesn't matter it also doesn't matter that's the thing that matters here like it, it doesn't matter if it's only been around for 50 years it doesn't matter if the black shirts are not really that big of a deal until three years before this it doesn't matter that you know no one's used the roman salute in goodness knows how long it's about evoking a sense of national belonging in service of uniting people for the pursuit of power right it's bringing people in line yeah, and it's appealing to their national nationalist sensibilities to do so. But not in the way that conservatives have been doing it because those guys are seen as washed up. It's about doing it in this new way of like listen, we can make our we can make our country stronger. Like we're the ones that can do it. We're the ones with the will. Everybody else they don't know what they're doing. Mussolini knows how to do this. If we follow him, we'll become stronger and everybody will be better for it. We just need to fall in line. Again, I'd like to point to that whole it's important to see how this is Appealing to a large number of people.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: This accommodation grows the membership in the Milan Fasci tremendously. In 1919, you're looking at about a thousand members. Okay. By 1921, you're looking at 250,000 members. Whoa. It's extraordinarily popular. Yeah. Appealing to fear is a really effective way (laughs) to do politics especially especially in the era of mass politics especially when it doesn't matter how informed a vote is a vote is a vote Mm -hmm. that is not lost on the fascists they are more than willing to court populism to gain power because power is the goal not adherence to a set of principles yeah power is the principle yeah in 1922, the, uh, the fascist paramilitaries shift from attacking socialists to just straight up taking over cities in Northern Italy. They realize that the government isn't actually doing anything to stop them. You have a situation where the military actually in a lot of ways really sympathizes with what Mussolini is putting forward. Militaries, okay. militaries tend to be uh, fairly conservative organizations for yeah. pretty obvious reasons. You don't want too much radical reform in a, a, a an organization like a military. Yeah, But also, like, leadership tends to be older. They tend to be a lot more cautious. Um, it's what, what got them to the top and old. Um, yeah. And when you look at the military in Italy, uh, just mm-hmm. after the First World War, they have a lot of the same concerns that uh, Mussolini is addressing here, right? This idea that we did everything right and we got nothing for it. Likewise, police uh, tend to be sympathetic and there's sort of a situation where like they're not like occupying as like occupying forces. They're occupying more like the mob in a bad neighborhood where like the police just don't go anymore. Okay. You know, does that,
1: does that metaphor make sense? Yeah, it totally makes
0: sense. They're just there. Blackshirts are the ones that kind of run things. The mayors would be answering to the fascist party stuff like that. Oh, and support for businesses as well, of course, Um, because the businesses appreciate what uh, the fascists are putting forward a lot more than what they're seeing from socialists. This fear of socialism is going to be core to the expansion of fascism. That's something I really want to highlight. Fascists in general don't get support without a socialist threat, because they usually don't get enough support to take over on their own merits. They usually only get enough support to take over as part of a coalition against so- socialism.
1: Gotcha. That makes sense. So in uh,
0: 1921, uh, I-, I missed this. Sorry. 1921, Mussolini is actually elected to parliament for the first time as part of one of these coalitions. Okay. Uh, so he is a sitting member of parliament in Italy when the black shirts start taking over these villages. There's, uh, I believe, thirty-five of them altogether, uh, thirty-five <laughs> fascist mem- members. I mean, oh, okay, sorry, not not cities, fascist members. Um, so this is a this is a sitting member of parliament who's doing this, and nobody's doing anything to stop him. That's disconcerting. It's really disconcerting, and I mean, again, you need to contextualize it within uh, the the fact that they just got out of a war, and everyone's very conflict averse. Um, the level of support that the fascists have, uh, and the regional centralization that they're the that you know comes from them being based in Milan has the king really worried about a civil war he's worried that if he shuts down Mussolini that those 250,000 people will just simply rise up in revolt in support of him and yeah those are 250,000 like card-carrying members how many more people have sympathies toward him yeah and how many people just don't like the king and the socialists that would be willing to join
1: to just join in yeah
0: that's a game of chicken right there. so he kind of keeps going with it and then in october of 1922 there's a you know a yearly party meeting basically at which uh mussolini calls for an occupation of rome so on the 24th of october uh 1922 26,000 black shirts make camp in three little uh groups uh outside of rome surrounding rome the prime minister at the time, Luigi Facta, uh, resigns in basically as acknowledgement of the failure of his government to maintain peace and order in the country. But okay, also, yeah. but also because he's had conversations with Victor Emmanuel III, you know, along the lines of him being amenable to imposing martial law on the country to deal with the fascists. Um, in his mind, he's resigning in order for a state of emergency, like a state of siege, to be declared about the city of Rome so that okay. the military can come in and finally deal with these fascists. And Victor Emmanuel Box, he doesn't declare martial law. He allows the black shirts to enter, and he offers Mussolini prime ministership as an olive branch because he's so afraid of civil war.
1: Well, he he would have been balancing the fact too that the military might have just joined in right
0: of course he was yeah absolutely he was that's the thing about revolution is as soon as you don't have the military on your side you're done yeah. um i mean this is this is not this is not a decision where i'm necessarily overly critical of emmanuel the third for victor emmanuel the third for specifically this decision it's probably the only one he had at that moment that didn't result in massive bloodshed
1: yeah i was gonna say
0: the issue is more the fact that they've gotten to this point but again oh yeah in 1924 or sorry in 1922 like who knows how to effectively combat fascism it's three years old it's brand new no one understands how to deal with it
1: got blindsided
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely so he's offered Mussolini prime ministership which he manages to form a government uh for the first term with uh basically all the conservatives in parliament and a number of centrist liberals who have like explicitly like free market economic policies gotcha yeah leaving out again the socialists uh because everyone is more concerned about socialist power than they are about the fascists at this point so the calculus here for liberals is do I form a coalition with the socialists and risk the country falling into Bolshevik revolution, which is what they're afraid of at this point, right? Yeah because there are socialists in Italy that subscribe uh, subscribe to the common term, like the the International uh, Communist Brotherhood that's that's headed by Lenin uh, yeah. or, or by the Bolsheviks, I should say. It's either that or we form a coalition with these fascists who like, I don't know, they mostly seem reasonable because a lot of the crazy stuff like hasn't necessarily come forward or they couldn't possibly mean all the stuff they're saying. They're just populists. They're riling people up. They're playing to uh, popular sympathies. You know, once they get in power, they'll settle down. That's what everybody does. Right. That's a that's a pretty common refrain of of liberals of this era. Like, okay, well, you know, you can have your big ideas, but like politics is a game of compromise. They're going to need to learn to compromise, or they'll be voted out. Yeah. Keep in mind, this is the first era where if you have a bad economy, you can be voted out by your, by, by your, your constituents, whether or not you actually had any direct uh, effect on it, right? Mm-hmm. And for the fairly uh, aristocratic politicians, this is seen as a negative, but they're also going like, well, if things go bad, they'll just get voted out, and then things go, go back to normal. Mussolini also saw this as an issue. He realized that he had a fairly tenuous hold on power in Parliament. And so to make sure that it was never threatened again, he put forward and managed to get past in elected Parliament something known as the Acerbo Law, which was okay. that the winning party in an election, as long as they got over 25% of the votes the winning party would be given two thirds of the seats in the legislature with the remaining one third split among the rest of the parties proportionally. Whoa. Meaning that whoever comes out first has a majority lead in parliament and can pass everything with a majority, uh, with no problems. Whoa. (laughs) He passes it. And then he goes on to win the 1924 election with enough of a margin to be given those two thirds of the seats. Yeah, effectively cementing fascist power in the Italian parliament in early 1925, just not, not that long after the uh, 24 elections, actually. Yeah. A scandal breaks out when a prominent social, uh, socialist leader, Giacomo Matteotti, was assassinated by a fascist. It's one thing to have black shirts brawling with labor leaders in the streets it's another thing to straight up murder the leader of another party. Yeah. And like, don't get me wrong. There had been significant violence between socialists and fascists in Italy leading up to this point. Like there'd been quite oh, yeah. a bit of violence, but this one, like you're the PM, like you're the prime minister of the comp of the country. Uh, you're supposed to be like, this is the part that's supposed to chill you out, right? That's how it's supposed to work. Isn't it? And where's the decorum where's the decorum is a great that's a great way of putting it the liberals and the socialists who basically have no power left in parliament walk out in protest this is known as the uh, aventine secession they start their own parliament i guess in in protest which has absolutely no power and <laughs> this is a bit of a miscalculation on their part because any like not that they really had any ability to contest anything in parliament but what they've yeah. done is allowed the fascists to be the only party in parliament yeah. and pass everything like unanimously they have zero mechanism for legitimate parliamentary dissent
1: Sorry, you said the uh, the liberals and the socialists walked out. Yeah. D- d- have the conservatives been completely absorbed into the fascists by this point?
0: No, they stick around. I mean, I, I, it's a little bit of an exaggeration to say that only the fascists are left, but like, they've been building coalitions with the conservatives to a point where there are a lot of uh, politicians who are like... <laughs> Not fascists, but might as well be fascists because they're seeing success and they're seeing alignment of goals and things like that. And keep in mind, the conservatives that we're talking about here would be conservative liberals, right? Like you don't have like the monarchists necessarily uh, uh, that you would have like 50 years before. Um, It's it's pretty infrequent that you're going to see somebody like that that's outwardly monarchist about this. So yeah, there there are still some some fairly conservative, like let's call them right wing politicians that are left, but. They're mostly in alignment with fascist goals at this point anyways. Okay. Mussolini's move at this point is really, really interesting and like very cinematic and very bold, but it's going to cement his power. He steps forward in legislation and he takes complete responsibility for the assassination. He says, you know what? It wasn't me that killed him, but yeah, it was a member of my party. And what he does is my responsibility. And then he says... I also just want to say that nothing wrong has been done. The man was a socialist. Mm. He's a traitor. And what are we not supposed to fight for our country? He declares the socialists and the liberals, uh, all the ones that walked out, a bunch of traitors, declares himself the dictator of Italy and makes the fascist party the only legal party in Italy, uh, you know, with a vote in parliament. And it passes and it works. And there's no revolt he now has control of the legitimate Italian military as well as the black shirts, the black shirts, which there's this really interesting thing here, which is like, hang on. Is the mob like, are they legit now? Because they report to the prime minister, even though they're not actually like the actual military, what's going on there. It's kind of confusing. Um, He solves this by basically giving every black shirt, group i suppose uh an official uh military leader so he'll take like a colonel or something and put it above a black shirt uh group and makes them sort of a part of the military and will continue to like formalize them over the years but kind
1: of deputized
0: that's a great way of putting it okay yeah deputized uh legitimized would be another really important point to make there um he's basically saying that like yeah these guys are uh, functionally a, a legitimate part of my government.
1: So we just mentioned that that Mussolini became dictator, which he took from uh, Denunzio, correct? Mm-hmm. And and that would have been a a callback to to Rome as well, right? Just to
0: just to make yeah. that connection
1: all the way through, right?
0: So that's that's a really interesting way of putting it because. What, what, you're, what you're putting forward right now is a central question that you could ask about a lot of things that fascist leaders do. Did Mussolini see it as an actual continuation of the tradition of the emperorship of Rome? Or did Mussolini co-opt the imagery of the emperorship and use that imagery of tradition, of nationalism, of continuity, to bolster his own power? In other words, did he care that it had anything to do with Rome?
1: I was definitely implying the second thing, but yeah, absolutely.
0: And my my opinion, personally, is that no, I don't think he really cared that it had anything to do with Rome. I think that uh, Mussolini very explicitly stated a number of times, most notably before the March on Rome even happened, uh-huh. that his goal was power. He believed yeah. that he was the right man to lead Rome. and the thing that you need to really recognize about the that fascist path to power is that a big portion of the uh, of of that process when seen in like successful uh fascist movements is this declaration that this one leader is the person who has the correct vision for the nation moving forward and that they're the only ones that can get you there right now yeah. whether or not you dress that up in the trappings of the the roman emperor is not functionally important from like a a power standpoint like from a like a game theory standpoint you know but fascism isn't only about the mechanisms of power it's also about the image of power and making it relate to people's nationalism for italy is crucial to convincing them that he's the right person to lead
1: yeah for sure
0: people have an image of a leader and you need to fit that image to some extent, or create that image in a new way that you can fit, if not. So the rest of the 20s, Mussolini is basically going to spend nationalizing a number of industries, bringing them under government control, and reforming to some extent the uh, justice system uh, under his own control. But we're more or less going to leave Mussolini here uh, at about the end of the 20s. The, the okay. latter half of the 20s are, are pretty smooth for him. But I do want to point out what we learned about a path to power for uh, fascists, okay? Uh, which we have, we've already started talking about. But the number one thing that matters here is a sense of crisis or a sense of decline that requires drastic me- measures that can't be addressed by traditional means, Right, mm-hmm. These fascists stepped in when the crisis, which is, you know, a, a feeling of national inferiority and a feeling of national entitlement unfulfilled, wasn't being adequately addressed by the current parliamentary system or by the monarchy that is supposedly the frame that the parliament has hung on or indeed by any of the socialists that were coming forward with uh, recommendations that if anything seemed to be moving away from imperialism yeah there's the importance of like the primacy of the group and the group as a victim right you need to create that in-group out-group it activates some very like primitive i suppose or primal instincts in people it helps them to get on board with the idea of uh collective action but at a national level
1: us versus them yeah
0: uh there's the need for the purification of the community, right? That extends from that us versus them, right? That's the way that you get on board. You gotcha. Yeah. blame the ills of society on those others, right? And then you convince these people that the way to get back to success is to purge the in-group of all of this infiltration. Mm-hmm. Then you convince everybody that, of the options out there your leader and this is what we were just talking about is the only one that has the ability to lead you to that victory and that those that that leader's instincts that that leader's will supersedes any reason or debate right you can't debate with this leader the leader knows best whatever he chooses is going to be best yeah and finally you need to convince everybody that the justification of violence and power are that they're justified in their own sake, right? That they are goals in and of themselves. That if you need to do violence, if you need to take power, if you need to take away rights, if you're doing it for those goals that we outlined for purging the community of infiltrators, for making the nation stronger, for making the community stronger, um, then it's justified,
1: That is justified
0: okay laws don't matter or rather they do but only until the laws are holding back those ultimate goals of power and violence for a fascist violence is a good thing it strengthens the nation in a lot of ways war is seen as like an ultimate expression of that strength it's how you figure out if you are the fittest in that survival of the fittest you're tempering things in flame you're tempering a gotcha. nation in flame. That's how you express power. Because it's one thing to take power and lead a nation. But if that nation itself isn't strong, then you're not the strongest. And so all of the nation, like during a total war, like during the Great War, the entire nation should be mobilized towards that greatness, towards that goal. And hmm. the natural or inevitable expression of that is warfare.
1: So international politics would just be sort of posturing to them. Mm -hmm. It's just just the lead up. That's where you. Okay.
0: Very much so. Yeah. Interesting. Fascism is forced to go through these phases, right? You need to gain a base first. You need to convince enough people to be on board with this vision before you can test that. Right. And so part of the problem that we are going to run into with studying fascism is that there are a very, very limited number of Successful fascist administrations, and even the word "successful" is a stretch there because, you know, they're they're all defeated in World War II. So uh, success is, is is relative. But I suppose a better way of saying it is: there's only so many that make it past that initial phase. Um, okay. And, and that makes it really difficult to study. So um, I think I want to take a break here and we're going to do a little bit more. I know, I know usually only do do uh, two parts, but afterwards, I want to talk about some of those, uh, a couple of those unsuccessful uh, attempts at fascism and see what we can learn from those. So we'll be right back. Back on HI 101 here with Ethan Blesky. And uh, we just uh, we just left Mussolini kind of in the middle of his story because uh, I think it's uh, a, a decent part, a decent spot to kind of split away.
1: Um, we have good bits
0: in a lot of ways. The move towards fascism, specifically, and and authoritarianism in in Europe in general, kind of comes in two waves. Each one predicated on on a crisis. One being the 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 First World War, and and Mussolini uh, is is definitely coming to the end of that phase and you know, the, the end of the 20s. So I, uh, I wanted to talk about, do you, ever, do you ever run into an anecdote that you hear so many times and with so many variations, you're kind of like, yeah, it's probably made up. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to talk about one of those, which is uh, a, uh, a statistical study uh, made in, in World War II by the, uh, the U.S. Air Force, specifically a statistician named uh, Abraham Wald. Okay. On, a, on an issue known as survival bias. The Air Force had collected a bunch of data on planes that had re- uh, returned from combat, and the data was specifically where the planes had been struck with bullet holes. Familiar with the story yet?
1: No? Uh, it's ringing a bell, but...
0: Okay. There's a, there's nope. a, there's a major uh, trade-off in, in military aviation, which is a trade-off between uh, wanting to armor the planes to protect the planes. Um, and, you know, being able to get off the ground <laughs> and, and maneuverability and fuel consumption and all of that stuff, right? So you you want to be uh, judicious in your armor plating. And so the the, the military has all this data, the Air, the Air Force has this, all, all this data, sorry, uh, about returned planes. And they notice that uh, the bullet holes are all in very specific areas of the plane. And they're kind of going, well, obviously we put the armor on the spots where they're getting hit with bullets until wald points something out to them, which is that they're only counting the planes that make it back. There's a, uh, there's a suspicious lack of bullet holes in the cockpit yep. and the engines and yep. an area of the fuselage near the tail where it's pretty thin. Um, okay. you know, the kind of spot where a, an anti-aircraft round could blow the tail off.
1: Just take the tail right off. Yeah.
0: And, he points out that the the issue here is that they're not counting data from any planes that are actually shot down that don't make it that's the the root of the term survival bias it's actually it's actually much older than than just this story but this is the most commonly used one to illustrate the point the point being that just because you have data doesn't mean you have all the data and you need to be aware of all the places where you you just simply didn't get some and why that might be is it because <clears throat> it, it isn't happening or because it's invisible to you You know, because of the data. I'm telling you all of this because I want to look at a couple of places where the uh, proverbial airplanes didn't make it back. Places where fascism failed. And the reason I want to do that is because it helps us figure out what it is that makes fascism succeed in other places. It also helps dispel the uh, myth that fascism only happens in basically Italy and Germany. Because it's really important to understand that basically every western democracy flirts with fascism or something like fascism after 1918 somewhere in the interwar period and in some places it makes it further along than others uh in some places it's fairly fringe but that doesn't mean that it was never there at all and it's really important to uh dispel the myth of some sort of exceptionalism in those two countries that made it prone to fascism in some way. Gotcha. With that in mind, the first place I want to talk about is France. People don't tend to think of France as like a necessarily fascist-friendly nation, mostly because of its role in World War II as the you know main opponent uh, or, or one of the main opponents of, of Nazism. That being said, if you remember l- back to that uh, list of thinkers and uh, influences on fascism, some of the names like uh, de Gobineau and uh, Marat and Sorel, uh, you'll notice there's there, there's a lot of French-sounding names in there. Sounds a bit French to me. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Gobineau especially, the, the racial destiny and racial purity guy. That was a very, very popular thinker in France. Not to mention uh, the entire topic of the Dreyfus Affair, which right. I did an entire episode on, and which it's uh, you know kind of integral to understanding early twentieth century France, the the level of anti-Semitism that existed, and the uh, propensity towards authoritarianism and the willingness to set aside rational conclusions for emotional reasons. You know that whole. That whole uh, uh, trial was a was an exercise in, in Rings the bell a little bit yeah in, in proto fascist uh, uh, mechanisms it's just that nobody was deliberately harnessing them in the way that uh, that they would in a couple of decades right yeah there's a number of, of nationalist movements that come up in France post war the the main one that we're going to look at is the francist movement founded by uh, Marcel Bucard in 1933. The Francis movement is explicitly modeled on and financed by Italian fascists. It's just kind of copied whole cloth from the Italian fascist movement. And it's done so, notice in 1933, after they've come to power, so it's full mask off. So what you get out of this is a program of racial purity of an explicit desire for power rejection of democracy collectivization of the nation for french superiority there's even a group of paramilitary that are not terribly effective but they exist they're put into place um they use blue raincoats uh, is their whole thing um <laughs> kind of the big moment of crisis that I want to focus in on for the Francis movement here it comes in 1934 it's known as the Stavisky affair um, Alexandre Stavisky was a con man uh, an embezzler uh <laughs> A rogue, I suppose. This was a guy who made his money off of defrauding other people, of conning them. Uh, there was like a, a notable uh, incident of him uh, passing off glass crystal as, as real emeralds to try and sell to, I think, Russian aristocracy or former Russian aristocracy or something like that. This is the kind it. of guy that we're talking about here. The thing about Stavisky was that he also had Connections to very, very important people. And by connections, I mean probably dirt.
1: <laughs> Blackmail, yeah.
0: Not like explicitly, like never, n- nothing ever really came out. But here's the thing when he was finally caught, his trials were inexplicably delayed over and over and over. In fact, he was released uh. on bail 19 times. Oh. <laughs> and one of the judges that was supposed to hear one of his cases, uh, was beheaded i believe under mysterious circumstances (laughs) i should laugh and as this case gets more and more international recognition people start asking more and more questions about stavisky's uh, connection to the french government i think understandably so the question mainly being why is he being protected by them because it seems an awful lot like he's being protected by if not the government then at least the paris police yeah so, eventually, Stavisky flees, and then a couple weeks later is found uh, dead. Some uh, news outlets are reporting it as a hit job. Uh, some are reporting it as a suicide. One famously notes that he has a, uh, a long arm uh, as a way to explain the distance the bullet clearly traveled from the gun to Stavisky. <laughs> so make of that as you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Stevsky is hushed up for whatever he knows. We don't really know, but the people are unhappy about this turn of events, and they 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 start rioting. And this is taken as a this is taken as a uh, an opportunity for groups like the Francis Movement to similarly riot against the government. This is their this is what they're made for, right? The Prime Minister at the time, Chotin, is forced to resign. Um, The right-wing protests start turning violent. Mm -hmm. The new Prime Minister, Daladier, uh, ends up dismissing the very popular right-wing chief of Paris police. So this is a complicated dynamic. They're not happy about the cover-ups, but they do like the police chief, who was very right-wing, who tended to let these... Uh, authoritarian fascist groups do what they wanted for the most part, or at least go easy on them. Yeah. So now they've dismissed the very popular with these groups, police chief and the revolts get worse because of it, or the riots get worse because of it. The city starts losing control of all of this. And when things get really heated, the police end up shooting 15 uh, members of the Francis movement because of this prime minister Daladier is forced to resign as well. So that's, prime minister two down Ooh. so the third prime minister uh dumer is forced to create because these other two guys were were left-wing and they had relatively large uh party membership in the parliament uh dumer is asked to form government because they're trying not to like get a, an election out of this because they're really worried about just general stability in an election setting after all of yes this. Yeah, understandably. So they asked Dumont to create a, a coalition to rule. It's a conservative coalition, but it's also like a very like law and order style uh, conservative co- coalition. Okay. Dumont comes in, restores order, like iron fist, disperses all of these protests, and the the whole incident is more or less diffused. There's still a lot of questions in general French society as to what exactly happened here. But it's, it's more or less diffused. So when these protests happen, there is a fascist movement waiting to take over in Paris, ready to be violent, has a paramilitary arm, has a fairly well thought out, cohesive nationalist uh, program. But they never top 10,000 members. Okay. Okay. And they end up being outlawed in 1936 as part of this crackdown by Dumal's, uh law and order uh, coalition. They're kind of treated as instigators and as criminals, and membership is 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 outlawed. Now they would go on to collaborate during Nazi op- occupation uh, in the 40s. This would be the main government that would form like the the uh, uh, occupation uh, yeah. French government. Yeah. But we're not really going to consider anything that happens under Nazi occupation too carefully in any of this stuff, because that's a different circumstance.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So what happens to this movement? Why didn't it go forward? They had their moment of crisis in which a new form of government should have been able to step up, because the entire government is implicated in this moment of fraud and corruption. That should have been it. What happened? The main thing is, as far as I'm concerned here, is that
1: nobody was utilizing it again.
0: Well, number one, yes, they didn't really capitalize on the uh, on the on the crisis the way that they could have. But number two, I want to note the fact that French society attempted to use every alternative to fascist rule that they could. And they settled on one that actually solved the crisis and restored order which was a conservative coalition that did not include fascists. Hmm. This was not a scare about socialism or the fabric of society. This was a scare about a very specific group at the top. And the solution ended up being found within traditional parliamentary means. Gotcha. So the thing that's missing here... Is that crisis that can't be solved? Remember, that was the the, the first step that we talked about before. A crisis yep. that can't be solved through through traditional means. I, I think that people sometimes overestimate like the appeal of revolution <laughs> to some extent, especially when talking about it in the, in the theoretical. Yeah, continuity is a good thing. Stability is a good thing. Yeah, uh, and societies are going to try and attempt to find stability through continuity whenever possible the overthrow of the entire fabric of society is bad for pretty much everybody and (laughs) they've already seen how violent things got in rome they've seen how violent things have gotten in other places and they went no we're going to figure this out we're going to make this work uh the military never wavered the police stayed on the side of the government yeah there was never any real threat to power so that's france there's also romania Again, we're not going to do every single nation that, that flirted with the idea, but Romania is another interesting one, which is that Romania as a country had been, uh, they'd really seen France as like a sister country for a very long part of their history. Uh, they've been independent since like the 1850s here. And they've often tried to follow that Western liberal pathway. In fact, a lot of the elite would speak French in private. It was It was a signifier of like, intelligence of elitism Um, Okay. in 1927 so again not long after uh the upheaval of the first world war and we're slightly after the success of the fascists in italy a group known as the iron guard is founded uh yeah 1927 by i'm not going to get this name right but but uh cornelio codrono codrono is a traditionalist and a nationalist in a different way than Romanians had been uh, nationals prior to that, which is that like following the, the the in the footsteps of France, seeing France as a like a big sister kind of thing. Cojocaru thought that was a, a tragedy that Romania should forge its own path, that it had a proud heritage and tradition that should be glorified, and began on a uh, on on this campaign for leadership that was based in. His understanding of a Romanian destiny based in this tradition, but very much along fascist lines. So he's seeing the influence of France as the major outside enemy, which, by the way, was another thing that the the French uh, flirtation with fascism never really had. They didn't have a strong outside enemy. Yeah, it um, didn't seem like it. That being said, they got close with the Stavisky affair because what I forgot to mention was that on top of being a charlatan, uh, Stavisky was also Jewish, which uh, adds to the layer of of danger here, right? Yeah. Anti-Semitism in France is arguably higher than uh, Germany for for a good chunk of the early 20th century. Yeah. Again, just see the Dreyfus affair, uh, <laughs> Romania. You know this this. Outside enemy is kind of seen as a little more insidious through the lens of this influence from France, which is a very like like it's not a super uh, intentional one on the part of France, right but he's uh, uh, Coudroneau is seeing French influence as being uh, a poisoning effect on Romania, preventing it from like fulfilling its own national destiny, right yeah. And he sees his leadership as the solution to that. It's very popular with the peasantry in Romania, who hasn't necessarily learned French and doesn't necessarily see the appeal of France. Makes um, sense.
1: French would be for the intelligentsia, and they they wouldn't have known it.
0: Yeah, it seems snooty. Um, but it's met with like a lot of resistance by liberal governments in Romania. They're they're operating on sort of a, a constitutional monarchy model, model at this point in time. Okay. The the Parliament tries over and over to ban the Iron Guard, uh, but it just continues becoming more popular until uh, finally in 1933, Iron Guard members assassinate the Prime Minister of Romania. Oh. This is a powder keg moment. It's very polarizing. A lot of people see Iron Guard as a bunch of terrorists. A bunch of other people see them as national heroes. So it does drive uh, recruitment. In 1937, there's an election in Romania in which uh, the Iron Guard comes in third place, which is high, with 15% of the vote, which again, is kind of high. For that's, that's a significant. Well, for a system that wants to put in place a, a tyrant, right? Yeah. And because of this, it's so close to a crisis that in 1938, the king of Romania... Uh, declares a royal dictatorship which is a really interesting thing that i don't come across that often in effect he negates the constitution and dissolves the parliament taking back direct control of the country
1: whoa i don't think i've ever heard of that before Mm -hmm. until now uh
0: he has cojurno arrested and has him killed in prison whoa (laughs) now this isn't the end for the Iron Guard, but again, the story does continue on in 1939 in the shadow of the Second World War. So yeah. I'm considering this to be pretty failed at this point. <laughs> um, again, not not that they don't continue to exist afterwards, but like this was their moment for a bid for power. Yeah. Notice that Mussolini comes to power as part of a parliamentary coalition. Mm-hmm. Hitler will do the same in the 30s. Yeah. That's the path to legitimate power for a fascist movement is gaining power in parliament through an anti-socialist movement. And Romania also had its issues with socialism in terms of like proximity to the Soviet Union, right? Like they were very concerned about socialism and a socialist uprising. Yeah. The way that Romania fails, the way that fascism fails in Romania here is the same reason for France, which is what?
1: Uh, Legitimate means sort of step in
0: uh this one doesn't
1: seem as legitimate but i agree but it does step in
0: but it is a yeah it is it is a solution to the crisis it is a solution to the problem that does not involve collaboration with fascists
1: yeah the The door isn't opened for them exactly
0: that's a good way of putting it the final uh failed attempt at fascism i want to talk about is in germany oh okay I think when we think about the path of fascism in Germany, we tend to think about it in one kind of continuous move. That's not true. There are very there there are two very distinctly separate waves of fascist sentiment within Germany. And the first one fails. Now, Hitler is going to play a, a key role in both, but yeah. it is so distinct as to say that there is a Um, There is a very plausible case to be made that even the the notability of the Nazi party in Germany could have very well ended in 1925 had it not been for outside circumstances. So let's talk about post-war Germany a little bit. Uh, the government that uh, exists after the First World War is known as the Weimar Republic. Weimar Republic. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's established after the fall of the Empire. Uh, it's basically a liberal democracy, like it's a yep. it's a parliamentary system, and interestingly enough, is one of the most progressive post-war states in Europe. While all the others are pulling back, uh, they're they're becoming you know they're cooling on progressivism. They're kind of pausing a little bit to evaluate. The Weimar Republic is a socially progressive society that's um, pushing past what most of the rest of uh, Europe is comfortable with at the time. It's a center of culture. Uh, it's a center of uh, societal liberation. It's a, it's a really interesting period to talk about. It's also kneecapped out the door by the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah. The Treaty of Versailles is one of those things that will never stop being debated in, in historical circles because there's so much to go over there that you, you can always find a little more to get upset about. <laughs> um, the core issue as far as Germany is, cons- is concerned though is that the end of the First World War sees most of the initial belligerents in World War I failed states, gone. Austria-Hungary started it, gone. The, the regime has crumbled. There is now an Austria and a Hungary and a bunch of other things that are going to get carved up by the Treaty of Versailles. But the, the government is non-functional, right? Yeah. Even Russia's gone and they were supposed to be on the winning side. Um, yeah. it's, it's a rough situation. Germany is the only one that is still somewhat cohesive after the war. And that's largely because of the deals that were made by the military command to surrender at the end of the war they didn't want a long drawn out invasion of germany on german soil they'd seen what war on belgian and french soil did to belgium and france so they quit when they saw the writing on the wall Mm -hmm. what that meant for them though was a conditional surrender it meant that among a lot of other things the the uh, responsibility for the first world war was heaped almost exclusively on Germany even though they weren't either of the instigating parties yeah they were, they were following uh, they were following a, a treaty system that uh, that forced their hand now yeah there are arguments to be made for their early aggression in the war etc cetera, etc cetera, but the point being that they're, you know, that, that they got the vast majority of the reparation payments levied against yeah. them. There was also Article 231 of the of the Treaty of Versailles, which is known as the War Guilt Clause, which forced Germany to take responsibility for all the death and destruction of the war single-handedly.
1: I don't think I'd heard that one. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. No, it's brutal. It kind of sucks. And it's unfair. I, I really do think it was terribly unfair. But you know the the treaty of versailles was partially about ending the war and it was partially about punishing germany you know you got to remember that france is one of the ones that's making terms and they were humiliated in the franco-prussian war only 40 years before right think back yeah. to the unification of germany uh, episode that was a humiliating defeat for them and so yeah they were out for blood mm-hmm. um, it was it was it was rough they had a lot to pay back to the other countries it was a lot of money yeah um, and it really hobbled the uh, emerging uh, Weimar Republic because the vast majority of the money that was was made in that Republic went straight to reparations payments. Famously, the the inflation was really, really high in the Weimar Republic early on. The reason for that was because in order to make payments, which were specified in marks, they debased the currency to a, a, a massive extent where it was much easier to make payments because each mark was worth less yeah now it had so. a, it had a devastating okay, effect so. on the German economy, but it 's what they had to do to keep up. yeah, they also had lots of their territory lost, including a lot of their uh, uh industrial territory uh They were occupied by foreign uh forces in the west there's a lot of stuff going on, and it was really hard for the German population to accept, partially because the media up until that point had been telling them that they were doing really well in the war. It was very common for uh, German citizens to believe they'd never actually lost a battle in the First World War, up until armistice. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. One person who uh, was especially upset by all of this was Adolf Hitler, who had served in the war, was yeah. injured, and by the time he recovered from his injuries, uh, basically uh, came back to find that the the war that he thought they were winning was over, Germany had lost, was forced to accept guilt for all of it. And he didn't quite understand why. There was a very popular conspiracy theory going around at the time known as the stab in the back theory, which suggested that uh, the government had been in some way influenced by vaguely defined Jewish people to, to surrender a war that they were winning. For question mark gain, I'm not super clear on the details on some of this. It kind of varies from account to account
1: conspiracy theory it's a
0: conspiracy theory about the end of the war that it was the fault of the jews which is obviously not true but i mean for a lot of germans who are looking for an explanation to something that they legitimately don't understand how it happened it's a more palatable understanding of the situation to for them than our military leaders uh uh, assessed the situation and decided that there was no winning it anyway so they made a decision that would save lives this is nationalism in action right here. Yeah. This is a, sp- a part of the story that I, I, I think I've missed and I'm not sure how, how frequently people are, are, are coming across it necessarily, but once Hitler recovers, he's not discharged from the army right away at the end of the war. He's actually a- employed by the army for a while in a really, interesting, uh, a really interesting role. In the emerging German political landscape, there are a lot of different uh, political parties Some of which are considered kind of dangerous. Uh, A lot of socialists. There are a number of socialist uprisings, actually, that are put down by the German uh, army very early on in the Weimar Republic. Socialists see this as a really good opportunity to create another communist state for obvious reasons. Yeah. Hitler is employed by military intelligence to basically check out various dangerous uh, or potentially dangerous uh, political parties. Observe oh, them observe them, and report on them to the uh, military. Now, Hitler already has a lot of extremely racist and anti-Semitic views. He uh, was actually born in Austria. I- I'm sure you knew about that. The reason yep. he moved to Germany was to avoid serving in the multinational Austrian army. He didn't want to serve alongside non-Germanic people. So he moved to Whoa. Munich. I did not know that. He moved to Munich so he could serve in an all-Germanic army. Um, yeah. So it's not like he didn't already have a lot of views yeah. going into all of this. But that being said, he went around and started listening in on like some very radical stuff, or in some cases, really boring stuff. In... 1919, he's, ex- he's exposed to the DAP. It's the German Workers' Party in German, which I'm not going to attempt right now. And listening in on these meetings, he found that he actually had a lot of commonalities with this particular party, who was extremely nationalist, who was extremely anti-Semitic, who was anti-democratic, who believed that the uh, end of the war was, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he ended up joining. He was the 55th member of the DAP. And he was quickly uh, identified as like by far the strongest orator in this party. He gave yeah. a speech like within the first month of joining up, and it was just uh, extremely compelling to these people. And he quickly became the public face of the DAP. This role as the, the main recruiter, propagandist, I suppose, uh, also put him in a position to uh, guide policy towards some of his uh, more outrageous nationalist ideas that the DAP was, like not even the DAP was at yet. Uh, he helped guide it in a more extreme direction okay. and he uh, ultimately ended up quitting, quitting the army and working for the party full time. It was renamed the uh, NSDAP in 1920, the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Yeah, National Socialist is one of those things that really throws some people for a loop. Uh, You get the whole, like, but the Nazis were socialist thing. This name would mean something very different to somebody in Germany in 1920. What it's saying is socialist, which means uh, an idea of collectivism, of uh, revolution, of commonalities. Uh, but the nationalist part rejects all the international class-based aspects of socialism up to that point okay so he's talking about collectivism for the benefit of the nation which which would be seen as immediately differentiating it from other socialist movements
1: yeah makes sense okay it's
0: a tricky one i know by 1921 he's put membership in the we're, we're, we'll just call it the Nazi Party from here on out because that's eventually what it becomes. Um, and because it's easier than saying NSDAP every time. Um, by 1921, over 2,000 members have joined up, mostly recruited directly by Hitler and his speeches. Uh, he was very convincing. Yeah. They develop a party militia. This is partly based on the Bolshevik Red Army, but also on the Black Shirts in Italy. This is known as the Brown Shirts. They have yep. brown shirts. It's based on, it's basically based on whatever like military surplus is easiest to get your hands on, and that's <laughs> that's where they come from in Germany. This is also known as the as the SA again, yep. big long German name, uh, uh, something like storm storm platoon or something like that in in English. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it's a party militia, it's a uh, uh, parallel to legitimate force again, right? Yeah. They're there to protect meetings, to disrupt the meetings of other parties, to fight other paramilitaries that exist in Germany. So they're brawling again with socialists in the streets. And there's this sort of like political violence is quickly normalized in Germany, very similar to the way that it was normalized in Italy, where it's kind of like, well, that's just sort of what parties do. Is they all put on the same outfit and then scrap in the streets. (laughs) And then people are like getting killed. But like what this helps, what what this helps the fascists do is legitimize the use of violence for political means. Uh, This is much a.
1: People are getting killed. We gotta. (laughs) Yeah, we got to do something.
0: Yeah, exactly. It it very much uh, so so it very much puts the socialists on the outside of things. It put it, it places the Nazis as defenders of you know quote unquote real Germans from the socialists, which is an internationalist threat, right? International, yeah. it's the Bolsheviks basically, so they're not real Germans, and we've got to protect Germany for the Germans and et cetera, et cetera, right? It, it all it's all very familiar on a rhetoric level. Yeah. In 1923, they're very much inspired by the March on Rome. And Hitler really wants to do the same, basically. Like, let's just have the military coup. (laughs) There are two big problems. Number one, there aren't nearly nearly as many brown shirts as there were black shirts. They don't have nearly as many forces. So they're not as powerful. And they're not... and, And number two... It's really inconvenient for them, but the Weimar Republic is entering its most stable and prosperous period of the entire uh, existence of that government. <laughs> Remember, the 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 uh, the march on Rome takes place in a period of like upheaval, right? There is yeah. massive violence. The government's not doing anything. The military allegiance is wavering. None of that is happening in Germany right now. If anything, things are getting more stable. The, the, the economy is improving. The governments aren't turning over every three months. Things are actually looking pretty good. This is, the, this is the beginning of like the golden period of the Weimar Republic. Yeah. And that's tough when your whole thing is predicated on a crisis, right? Where's the crisis here? Sure, people are still upset about the whole Treaty of Versailles thing. That's very, very fresh. But things are on the upswing. Like, is it so bad, really? Because of that, when they attempt this this uh, coup in Munich, this is known as the uh, Beer Hall Putsch. Um, uh, you might have seen that that phrase come around. Um, yeah, uh, Putsch is is uh, German for coup, basically, more or less. Uh, they <laughs> met in they met in beer halls in Munich. That's the whole. That, there's the whole name for you. Um, <laughs> when when they attempt this coup, uh, they are. Crushed by local police and by the military very quickly. It gains zero traction. Hitler uh dislocates his shoulder in the fighting, is arrested a couple days later. He's sentenced uh on charges of treason, Ooh. which carries a minimum uh sentence of five years. Uh he only serves about eight months of it, but still. After the crushing of the coup in 1923 the Nazi party would struggle to gain membership after that, especially with Hitler in jail. They wouldn't really gain membership, power or political relevance for basically the rest of the twenties, because there's no real crisis. There's a stable government. There's an alternative to power, right? All of these things that we've talked about. Yeah. There's no foothold for the fascist party to, uh, slip into to take power. There's no coalition needed here. Yeah. This is when he's going to write Mein Kampf, where he lays out his uh, not all, but most of his uh, uh, thoughts on uh, race and nationalism and power and all of this. Uh, he'll yeah he'll he'll write it while he's while he's in jail. And when he comes out, the the general kind of sentiment is oh he's come out like a, a humbled man. You know we shouldn't see any more trouble from good old Hitler and. <laughs> here's the thing like you might not have if it hadn't been for another crisis coming around so that all leads up to what i've been dancing around for the last third of the show which is uh the the great depression right the market crash in 1929 yeah and i think that's where we're going to leave things because the the market crash is what's going to kick off the next big round of Fascist sentiment of crises for fascists to slip into. It's going to yeah. give Hitler the opportunity to form government. It's going to modify the way that Mussolini rules, and ultimately will give will put the the world on a trajectory, at least with the help of these fascist powers, towards the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So that's we're gonna we're gonna end today. Uh, when we come back for part three, we'll be talking about. Uh, uh, the Nazi Party taking power. We'll be talking uh, about the ways in which Mussolini changed. Uh, we're not really going to talk about World War II, other than in the ways that it affects specifically fascist rule, um, yeah. because that's a that's a whole other kettle of fish. That I've said many times, I'm not really interested in getting that deep into. But you know, inevitably, it's going to rear its ugly head, and uh, yeah, that's what we're looking at for part three. So uh, we we'll do that next month, I suppose. Next time on HI101, we'll look at how the global market crash in 1929 afforded the Nazi party a second chance at power by sending Germany into a crisis that both fit the fascist narrative and appeared to need unconventional solutions to solve. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I stated numerous times that Slovenia was incorporated into Italy after the First World War. This is only true for a minority of the country. The rest actually became part of what would be known as Yugoslavia. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash HI101podcast, on Twitter at HI101podcast, or by email at contact at HI101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash HI101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash HI101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blusky and this has been HI101.